0: This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. In our previous podcast this month, we talked with Camille Neveker, director of the Connected and Open Research Ethics CORE initiative, about the emerging use of tools like mobile devices and apps, cams, and social media in human subjects research. This time, we are going to revisit a panel session from the 2014 Primer Advancing Ethical Research Conference. In this clip from the panel session on the evolving nature of privacy and confidentiality, John Wilbanks talks through another angle on changes we are seeing in notions of privacy and confidentiality. The scale of data available to researchers has increased dramatically. Various devices and apps have made real-time collection of data about our habits and experiences possible. Are we going to need to change the way we think about privacy and confidentiality? What kinds of things are researchers doing to navigate these important questions and participant expectations? John Wilbanks has a brief report for us here from the Vanguard of Big Data Research. John T. Wilbanks is the Chief Commons Officer at Sage Bionetworks, and he works to promote the use of technology to pool medical data, creating a commons where information is integrated and accessible. Mr. Wilbanks is also a Senior Fellow at Faster Cures and founder at Consent to Research. Mr. Wilbank serves on the board of directors for Impact Story and the TransSmart Foundation, as well as on the advisory boards for Boundless Learning, Curious, Genospace, and Patients Like Me. He has numerous publications on data sharing, and a chapter titled, I have seen the paradigm shift and it is us, in the fourth paradigm, data intensive scientific discovery.
1: I already gave most of my structured stuff, so I'm going to be a little more off the cuff. Um... And the the first thing I wanted to bring up is this concept of the evolving nature of privacy, confidentiality, uh, anonymity, um, and so I think that we've put an enormous burden on the word privacy, right? It sort of it has to contain all of these multitudes of things you know, on one level, things like freedom of expression and freedom of assembly, um, which are what we sort of, the mainstream privacy conversation is dominated by, uh, as well as these ideas of sort of protection from harm or protection from uh, unique identification. And the, the thing that is interesting to me about the space right now is that there's sort of simultaneously a crisis and an opportunity. And if you're a Simpsons fan, you would say that's a crisis-tunity, Right. <laughs> And the crisis is the pressure of big data and the pressure of utilitarian philosophies to say, you know what, the greatest uh, good for the greatest number of people, and maybe we'll create something like a vaccine, um, a vaccine abatement fund for people who get hurt by big data, and that's that's a it's a legitimate argument out there. I just don't happen to agree with it. So Mark, Mark and I agree a lot on this, but I think the opportunity is to to make that that, the argument of the centrality of the individual. The thing that's unique about the space is that it places the unique individual at the center. Sort of the whole concept of big data is to reduce the individual to a couple of data points in the data, in the set. So it's, it's a remarkable space, the bioethics space, from which to actually start talking about evolving our contemporary understanding of privacy and confidentiality into one that is actually human-centered, as opposed to one that is scale-centered or algorithm-centered. It's a remarkable opportunity, because I don't know any other space that even has the capacity to make that be the
0: argument. Let's back up just a second. What is this space? What is big data? Big data is a pretty broad term, which is why we hear it so frequently these days. But it applies to datasets so large and complex they require new technologies and techniques to make them useful for research. Mobile devices, cameras, software logs, social media, and activities as simple as buying something in a store with a credit card feed these databases continually. Here is a good example. The NIH 1000 Genomes Project is publicly available through Amazon Web Services. Amazon does not just sell things. It also stores things on the web in what we call cloud-based applications or services. This NIH database holds over 200 terabytes of information. Now this is hard to imagine, but this is the equivalent of 16 million file cabinets filled with full pages of text or 30,000 standard DVDs. Entities like Sage BioNetworks have begun to harness the power of all this data for scientific discovery while fully recognizing the ethical challenges that have appeared along with big data.
1: So the, the things I want to pull apart are anonymity first and then confidentiality second. So I, I do think that anonymity is going to be very difficult to guarantee You know, at least for the next 10 or 20 years until we develop technologies that create anonymity more effectively. Because the sort of the the slope of the curve in consumer tech is such, and the devices are so robust and capable of measuring so many things and transmitting those measurements so many places, that anonymity becomes relatively difficult, right? Unless you simply opt out of a lot of the systems that gather the data. Um, and that's kind of a weird, depressing statement, but I actually believe it. And, and this comes from the, the very small number of unique data points about an individual that are required to probabilistically uniquely identify that person. And so this is why I think it's really important to say anonymity isn't privacy. Right? I think anonymity is part of what we have attached to privacy, but this, this concept that we are going to be perfectly anonymous, it's just going to be really hard. Even if you decide to never pay cash, right? Sorry, to never use a credit card, but to only pay cash, Right. Let's say you're freaked out about Uber for lots of reasons. Right? Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard um, some of the things that Uber is known for doing. One of them is what they call rides of glory, which are anyone who takes a taxi between 12 and 1 a.m. to a location and then takes a second taxi away from that location between 4 and 5 in the morning. Right. They've deleted this blog post. Right. The anonymity of that is is pretty small to the people who are inside the company because they can see the account information of the individuals, they can see the addresses they went to, right? The anonymity there is terrible. What's awful is that the norms don't say that that behavior is wrong. And so, you know, you could get a... And then and so I've been watching the debate on this thing. oh, well, don't use Uber. Delete the Uber app from your phone. Okay, cool. Let's say I use cash and take taxis. At least in New York, they've all got cameras in them. Those cameras are uploading facial images to a face recognition system. So okay, so I can't take a taxi, I can take a bus. Well, bus stops are typically surveilled by video cameras, which are also uploading images to a facial recognition system. So anonymity is getting to be a pretty hard thing to do unless you want to be a total Luddite. Um, And frankly, a lot of these tools and services that are taking our anonymity away are, are useful. And people like them and are willing to make the trade. So it's gonna be pretty hard to overcome that. And so I'm I'm pessimistic about anonymity until we can come up with better cloaking systems for anonymity. And there is some good stuff happening on that front from the privacy community. So encrypting all websites securely end to end makes it harder to crack the stuff that you can slurp up continuously. Using encryption on email makes it harder to slurp stuff up continuously. There's a variety of things that I think are going to happen that are going to make it harder to relentlessly surveil. But you know, if you use a loyalty card at a at a, a grocery store with a credit card, you've been identified. Like in that single transaction, you've been identified. So I think that we can talk about anonymity in health and clinical research in a way that's really important, but we have to acknowledge that the anonymity outside of the health and clinical research in those people's lives is really decaying. So to the extent that we're preserving something, we should be preserving something that respects the privacy and the desires of that individual. And so that's sort of the second piece to me, which is confidentiality. When I dig in on, on what people say they want, when they say they want anonymity, in most cases what they want is protection from harm. However, they define harm, as well as some sense of confidentiality of the information. And when we talk about consent, so much of the consent of the burden on consent is on the subject and not on the data user in a big data context. So you know, I didn't get into this, but at Sage we have an entire set of constraints on data users that we apply that we feel protect the confidentiality of the data that gets uploaded. So we de-identify everything. We're super careful about de-identifying things by removing identifiers. We also are very explicit that we don't guarantee anonymity over time. But we make strong promises about the confidentiality that we maintain. So, and we put all these burdens on the, on the subject enrolling. Well, one of the things that we came up with is what if we made our data users take a test before they were allowed to access the data that comes in through these mobile consents? So we've got 60 questions, sort of, you know, very complex SAT-style questions, and you get served 15 of them as a data user. If you want to upload data or access the data that's gathered under these mobile consents, you have to pass the test at 100%. And you can take it as many times as you want, but we'll mix up the questions. Because we're reducing the odds that a naive user comes in, downloads the data, and leaves it on a bus. right? You can do an enormous amount. By putting a burden on the data user to maintain confidentiality of information, not just by trying to guarantee anonymity through, you know, technical hacks that, de- that degrade the research value of the data, or by frankly over promising because you want to recruit people by promising them total anonymity forever. Because the thing that makes you valuable medically, from a study perspective, right, is the longitudinality of the data about you. right? The more we can learn about your phenotype, your environment, your choices, your genotype, the more we can infer replicable knowledge about those kinds of phenotypes, those kinds of genotypes, those kinds of environments. So it's really hard to promise someone if you're going to do a useful longitudinal study that you're going to perfectly protect their anonymity, but you can absolutely maintain a series of norms about confidentiality. And imposing obligations on the user is one way, right? And then thinking creatively about ways that you can make sure the user of the data understands those terms as well as the subject understands the consent terms are really important. So one of the things that I'm pushing for with a variety of institutions is a video oath for people who want to analyze big data. So there's there's sociology on this, and it comes from honor codes at schools over cheating, which is that if you have an honor code, it reduces cheating. And the, the effectiveness of the honor code appears to be correlated with the complexity of the signing ceremony. Right? So if it's just in your freshman orientation pack, you're like, "Yeah, but it does help, right? Uh, but if you have to go sign the wall in front of your entire class, cheating just drops remarkably. So could we come up with a 20 2030 second oath that says, "I pledge not to reidentify anyone in this data set, even if I might be able to. I pledge not to harm anyone, you know on purpose or by accident, right? I pledge not to contact anyone who doesn't want to be contacted. And make them record that. I mean, I have three cameras in my bag backstage between the front camera of my phone, the back camera of my phone, and my computer webcam. It would take me less than a minute to to record such an oath and upload it to YouTube. And why shouldn't that be part of every big data researcher's profile page so that anyone whose data is being accessed can go play the video? And the funniest thing is I'm doing this with a big institution. The IRB loves it. IRB loves it and the researchers say we, we showed them the pledge and the researchers are like oh this is fine and we said now we want you to record a video I don't know about that I mean, interesting right? <laughs> what part of the oath don't you like right? it was fine to sign it but I think this, these are the sorts of things that we have to think about. We have to think about the technologies that protect confidentiality, but we really need to think about the norms for the users of the data and the collectors of the data that say, you know, don't collect icky personal data, right? Don't snoop in it for fun to write blog posts or to tell party stories. You know, take pledges, right? Bind yourself to act in an ethical way. Because I think the, the, the scale of the data we have is new enough. The ethics aren't, but the scale of the data is new enough. That I think we can look for new sociological ways to try to encourage the users of data to not be jerks. Because some of the most pressing problems we have in in anonymity and confidentiality have to do with the users of the data being jerks. And we can, you know, it's, I don't really want to consent people to say, not only do I want you to share your data with me and share your your personal information, but I'm going to give it to jerks who are going to abuse it. I don't want to consent people to that. I want to say, I'm going to share it with people who share your values. Right? Because I really think that the, the, the asymmetric stuff that Mark talked about is really important. And it's going to be even easier for a researcher to pretend that those aren't people in a big data world. Or if you've got, you know, one, you know, one person is a person, right? One person's medical record is a person, but a million medical records is a statistic. 50 million medical records is so big that you think of what we could do with that, but don't ever make me talk to those 50 million people. And I think there's a sort of a sacredness to saying, let's put the person in the middle. So sort of to, to come back to, to where we started, right, the which is what Laura was talking about the norms of this. Right? I think we can do an enormous amount to protect confidentiality. I think we didn't need to acknowledge how hard anonymity is, especially in terms of the utility and the relationship they have with each other. But we have to think about the norms and the way that we enforce those norms, because that's really what scales best. It's not going to be legislation, probably. It's probably not going to be policy, although we can do a ton in both of those spaces. But norms scale really well. And I'll sort of stop with an example of, you know, I spent a lot of time in the hospital this fall as a caregiver. And we have a norm that we don't look in open doors at hospitals, right? It's a very powerful norm. If you are walking around staring into people's hospital rooms, you're a jerk, right? We offer the creation of confidentiality in the hospital, even when the architecture of the hospital renders it nearly impossible. And that's the sort of thing that we should be asking the users of data for and trying to promise to those who share their data because we can't guarantee them anonymity. We can guarantee that their data gets used and changes things. We can give them the choice of whether or not to be part of that. And we can also talk about the impositions of the norms that we make on those who would ask to analyze
0: it. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.